1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions.
2: Tonight, it didn't crash, it landed. We start our discussion on what happened in Rendlesham Forest in 1980. This is Rendlesham, England, Part 1. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Season 5 Finale, Part 1 of the Season 5 Finale, uh, Episode 5.09. And uh, tonight, we begin talking about what many, and I think even including me, I'm lumped in with that, uh, say is the most intriguing kind of UFO case uh, that we have. And um we're not talking about Roswell. We're talking about Rendlesham, England, and Rendlesham Forest, and uh just all of the wacky stuff that happened over a couple of nights just past Christmas in nineteen eighty. So that is it. That's the big big season finale, two parts. Uh tonight mostly we're I'm gonna give you most of the story about like 90% of it. And then and then episode 2 we're going to deal with a couple of like big alternate explanations of what might have happened. Um and one of those kind of is a big chunk that I had to take out because it leads to something completely different. And so we'll get to that in the end and then we'll get to another explanation which is so involved and so massive, uh, it got its own book. So we're gonna that that'll be like the next episode. We're gonna talk about these two kind of this what ifs with this, and then we'll circle back. We'll do some kind of smaller stuff like, oh, it might have been this. Was it just the light of a lighthouse? Things like that. Uh, some smaller, some smaller alternate explanations of what have ha- what happened, and uh, some more uh, out there than others. And then we'll probably talk a little bit about, like, where everybody is now and what happened to them over the years, all the characters in this story. But this is, like I said, I think this is a much bigger case, a much more substantial case than Roswell. You have, I think, actual evidence, not just, like, a picture in the newspaper of an air balloon that may or may not have been, like, real. You have recordings, you have plaster casts, not just one, but two sets of plaster cast of landing gear. Uh, you have apparently photos, which we've never seen because apparently all the photos got overexposed and were foggy, but there's some out there and just, you know, it's all military guys. It's all, it's, it's just everything. I think it's a way better case to look at and study uh, now than Roswell is because, a lot of these people are still around. It happened in much more modern times. It has better evidence. Uh, just, we'll see. You'll get. We'll get into it. I'm not going to bury it for too long. You know what? Yeah. No, we're good. That's just it. Let's uh, start talking about the Rendlesham incident, as, a, as they like to call it out there in the UFO world.
1: Hello, all you curious creatures out there. I'm Amber Ray, And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are the hosts of Into the Portal. If you like myths, legends, history with a paranormal twist, join us every week as we explore lesser-known mysteries of our world and beyond. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and all other major podcast platforms. And at intotheportal.com, your gateway to the bizarre. The only question is, do you dare peer into the portal?
2: Rendlesham is a small village of about 3,000 located near the shore that borders the western part of Suffolk County. In between the village and the ocean shore is Rendlesham Forest. And in 1980, two USAF bases, that's right, United States Air Force bases, were located in the forest. And they would become ground zero for one of the most intriguing if not the most intriguing UFO case ever. The two small U.S. Air Force bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge, which at the time they were U.S. bases, I believe now they have been reverted back to uh, RAF bases. Both of them started out as sort of a uh, emergency landing base for uh, planes during World War II, so they were because they were so close to shore and they were kind of on that eastern edge where all the action was, They were set up for planes that were coming back to England that uh, maybe maybe needed to get out of sight, get out of the air, they were damaged or whatever, and they didn't think they could limp all the way back to their home base. They could land here and uh, be taken care of. That was kind of their whole operation. However, as the Cold War raged on through the decades, the bases became a first line of defense against the Iron Curtain that had swallowed up many lands to the west of England. But what put these two bases on the map would not be anything Cold War related, I guess that we know of, but something much more unexplainable. In the early hours of December 26, 1980, Airman First Class John Burroughs and his Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens saw strange blinking lights in the sky. They were very familiar with their surroundings and knew that these lights definitely were out of place. The lights came down low and the the men's first thought was that perhaps a civilian plane had come down and crashed somewhere in the forest. A few calls were made and Jim Penniston, the on-duty flight chief, was asked to join the two men out by the east gate. Penniston took Airman First Class Edward Cabinsag with him, and the two drove out to the east gate. Penniston, slightly annoyed as to why he had not been briefed on the situation. So he went out there, like middle of the night, it's cold, it's the day after Christmas, and uh, he doesn't even know why yet. The four men met at the gate. Peniston and Cabinsag were given the details and also saw the lights out in the forest. Over the wire, as the military would say. Which basically means, like, this is happening outside of the base. Like, it's not, it didn't happen on base grounds. It happened, technically, on British soil. And uh, that's kind of what over the wire means, is that, oh, there's something going on, but technically, it's not in our perimeter. So they've all seen the lights, they all know what's going on. And then uh, Stefan says, uh, the best line ever, he says, It didn't crash, it landed. Before continuing on, radar was checked at Bentwaters. So I I forgot to mention, they were at Woodbridge. They were, that's the base that they started from was Woodbridge. So they checked the radar at Bentwaters. They checked it at Heathrow Airport and a few other nearby bases. And a bogey had been seen on radar 15 minutes or so prior, but that seemed to just disappear as quickly as it had came. Peniston was given permission to leave the base and continue the investigation, but he did request some backup. Uh, after hearing about the radar blip, backup arrived in the form of Master Sergeant Chandler. So Chandler, Cabinzag, Peniston, and Burroughs uh, went through the open gate and drove off into the forest. I'm not sure, I'm assuming, I'm not sure what happens to uh, Stephens after this. I, I guess he just stays at the gate. I'm not, I don't, I don't know, he just kind of goes away after this. Uh, they went as far as they could get in a military jeep, but eventually their path became too rugged to continue driving, so they decided to go to the rest on foot. At this point, the four men began having a trouble with their radios, all of them at the same time. Something seemed to be interfering with the signal. To compensate for this, they decided to set up a radio relay, with Chandler staying at the Jeep so that he could then like radio back into base if needed. And then eventually, Cabin Sag was somewhere in the middle, and this meant that Burroughs and Pennington had to venture into the forest to intercept whatever was out there. So they were getting a very weak signal, so they couldn't rely on their their signal together making it back to base or anything so they decided to basically piggyback their stuff on each other they were having issues getting the radios to get the base but they could get Chandler you know they could get Cabin just fine and then Cabin could get the Chandler and then Chandler could get to the base and that's kind of how they solved that problem as the two drew near and near to the lights the environment around them seemed different the air around them suddenly filled with static electricity and this made the hair on their arms stand on its end. It seemed harder and harder to walk as well. They described it as trying to tread through water. The two men then came to a clearing which was illuminated by a bright white light. There was an object above them just near the tree line and suddenly an explosion of light hit the clearing. Both Penniston and Burrows hit the ground fearing it had been an actual explosion. It wasn't and the light quickly dissipated and a small triangular craft had landed in the clearing. The craft was adorned with white and blue lights along with strange glyphs etched on its sides. Penniston crept closer to the craft. His intention was to take photos and do a sketch, which he did. And the photos have never seen the light of day. When the film was handed over to be developed, everyone was told that they were overexposed or foggy. And uh, this seemed to happen whenever anyone tried to take photos of the area. Peniston got close enough to touch the object. And when he ran his hand over one of the glyphs, the object once again erupted in bright light. Peniston was panicked, but he did not turn away. And after a few moments, The light receded and the strange craft slowly rose up above the trees and flew off at a quote-unquote impossible speed. For a while, they attempted to relocate the craft. They did, and they saw more lights in the sky, but eventually it disappeared to the east. On their way back, they uh, noticed circular impressions in the frozen ground. There were three impressions in the shape of an equilateral triangle. They also saw that some of the trees had been hit by something. Many of them had snapped branches. As the men made their way back to base, they found that a search party had almost been sent out for them as they had been outside in the woods for 45 minutes. Much longer than they should have. And uh, I'm going to say, based on what happens the next night, they were probably at, really expected to be out there maybe 15, 20 minutes on what transpired, so then it turns into 45. The next day, Pennington went home and I uh, went to his place in Ipswich wanting more evidence of the night he had just endured. He and a friend went back out into the forest and took plaster cast of those landing impressions. So then later in the day, he's back on base now, both Penniston and Burroughs helped a team to go back to the clearing and gather evidence, such as taking photos and uh, you know, readings of you know, around the area and all that. And then they, they also took another set of plaster casts. So so the military now has their own official set of plaster casts, but Penniston went and went and got there first and got his own plaster cast, like, just for his own, like, I have this evidence, no one else is going to have this evidence. Also, fun fact, when he talks about these plaster casts, he refers to them as the pod cast. P-O-D, one word, cast as another, which always makes me kind of chuckle. And that would not be the end of it, because the next night, it happened again. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
2: On the evening of December 28th, there was a party on base. The Combat Support Awards Dinner. Base commander Ted Conrad and deputy base commander Charles Holt were both in attendance enjoying the party. That was until Lieutenant Bruce England came and crashed said party. He entered the room with a shocked look on his face and made his way up to Conrad and Holt and told them that the UFO was back. Holt and Conrad discussed what to do. One had to stay at the dinner and the other needed to go out and investigate. Conrad, being Holt's senior officer, drafted Holt to go out into the cold uh, and see what was going on. Holt assembled a group of men and asked for light awls to be fueled and ready. And uh, if you're not sure what a light awl is, you're probably, we've, you've probably seen them. Uh, they are those the, the big packs of bright lights, like almost stadium light lights that are on like a pole. That is then connected to like a generator, that will fuel them, and you know the generator will light them up, and the, so then you can essentially put them anywhere where there's not power. Uh, you'll you'll see them a lot in like construction, like during the night and stuff like that. But that is what a what a light all is. And right off the bat, there were issues with some of the light alls malfunctioning, and this has been a big bone of contention to many who look into this case. Uh, Was this simply bad luck and low fuel, or was there something affecting the lights, much like something that affected the radios from the night before? Holt armed himself with his trusty tape recorder and a starlight scope, which is uh, pretty much a precursor to, I don't want to say so much night vision, but kind of the FLIR thing, because it would see heat and all of that. Another man who joined the team was named Sergeant Monroe Neville's and he brought a Geiger counter. John Burroughs was also asked to join the team uh, in, some, in the form of sort of a guide, uh, since he had already been out there and kind of knew what was going on. The men began in the clearing from the night before. Neville monitors the Geiger counter and seeing no signs of heavy uh, radiation in the media area just kind of, you know, he's like, alright, it's cool, we can go. You can hear this on the tape, uh, by the way. All, pretty much all of this, till the very end, is on that tape. But he didn't see what he thought was anything kind of, you know, dangerous. They noted the damaged trees, took soil samples, and even recorded some higher radiation levels around some of those damaged trees. Holt also used his starlight scope and noticed there was still heat reflecting off the damaged trees. He also noticed what he called hot spots on the ground. So, just to kind of put this in perspective, we're not we aren't even to what uh, the guy that crashed the party saw. We are still we are back at the clearing from the night before, and it is still reflecting some sort of heat or some sort of energy is still kind of around the area just like the night before the team pressed further into the woods and they would start to hear nearby farm animals making noises and dogs barking and howling the team of men then begin to see a light in the sky they describe it as having a yellowy tinge and a black middle like an eye and sometimes it maybe would even blink a little bit because it would come in and out many times on the tape you can hear men saying that pieces are splitting off of this eye and uh, they never really know what it is. Is it, is it smaller little ships or craft or is this thing damaged? And it's like leaking, you know, some sort of spatter or something coming off of it. They then went further on uh, nearing the coast, as well as edging closer to those farms that all, you know, all the animals that they had heard here, they would see five more lights. One of these lights seemed to come closer to them. It is at this moment that a bright blue beam shot down at them from one of those lights. And this is pretty much where the tape ends, about 18 minutes in. Now over the years Holt has told some people in interviews that there's actually a couple of hours to this tape, but that's really all he says. he doesn't really go into what happened or what it is. After this, the witnesses describe very much the same thing that Penniston and Burroughs saw the other night. An explosion of light and a hovering craft and then it's gone. The next day, Halt contacted Wing Commander Colonel Gordon Williams. Williams was the commanding officer of both the bases. Williams asked to borrow the tape so that he could play Uh, the tape for General Robert Basley who at the time was the most senior officer of the Air Force stationed in the UK. After hearing the tape he asked where this incident occurred and when he was told that it happened outside the base fence he seemed relieved. It didn't happen on the base which means it wasn't really their responsibility. Because of this Holt was asked to pass on the story to to their British liaison officer, Donald Moreland, who would pass it on to the MOD, or the Ministry of Defense. Holt did so by putting out a memo, and in the memo he detailed both nights and the evidence found. One odd thing about that memo was that Holt said everything started on the 27th, not the 26th putting all the information 24 hours ahead of when it actually happened. And uh, we don't really know why. This is just one of the many weird little things that doesn't add up. Uh, The biggest kind of reason that can be given for it is that he was kind of future-proofing it from Freedom of Information Act request, because if you screw up the dates, if you mess with the dates, and then down the road... Somebody tries to get a FOIA on it. Well, they've got to give the dates. They got to say, "I'm looking for documents that happened on this, you know, on this incident on the 26th and the 27th of December 1980." And then they're going to go look for something, and they won't. They'll pass up the memo because the memo has different dates on it, which I guess makes a lot of sense. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as to why Holt would want to do that because. After this all came out, he's been a huge proponent of the story and of the extraterrestrial explanation for this story. He's never really held back and I, I don't know if he just did it back in the day as a way to take heat off of him because he was at the beginning of this he was very worried about losing his job and his clearance and his career in the military and all of that and maybe I don't know maybe as time went on he softened about it a little bit but just just a weird little like wrinkle in that whole thing. There was a a problem to this whole memo stuff, this whole Ministry of Defense thing. Moreland, who was supposed to deliver this information to the MOD, was on vacation until the 12th of January of 1981. So just after the, you know, beginning of the new year. So by the time the MOD heard about what happened, they had assumed that enough time had passed that either the, uh, the USAF Done an investigation on it, or that it wasn't important enough to do one. And so, this is where it's kind of this catch 22. Uh, the military, the Air Force is very relieved because they were like, Oh, it didn't actually happen on the base, so it's not our responsibility. Uh, the Ministry of Defense will investigate it. And then, so they didn't really do an investigation because they're like, it ain't, It's not our, hands off, it's not our problem. We just noticed it. And then the Ministry of Defense is like, well, these guys waited three weeks to tell us. You know, they didn't know about this dude being on vacation until the 12th. So either A, the trail has gone cold because it's been three weeks, or they must have already done a thorough enough investigation about it not to to, uh, worry us with this incident. So in the end, that kind of helped that, you know, made all this energy, this, uh, you know, force behind it kind of peter out a little bit. And so because of that, really, the story fell silent for almost three years. I say mostly because uh, something, a story this juicy, finds a way. A man who would be known as Steve Roberts, that is a name in quotation marks, that is a pseudonym, would uh, said he told a local musician at a bar on New Year's Eve 1980 about it. Uh, The musician then told his story, told this story, to his girlfriend who was highly interested in the UFOs and the paranormal in general. And uh, this story was probably many over that New Year's holiday that was told in bars all across Suffolk, I would imagine, right? You got guys going out to celebrate New Year's, they're drinking, uh, you know, know, that, that social lubricant starts acting up and I'm sure that more than this steve roberts uh it probably happened in a couple of bars a few bars and just became this story you know it wouldn't be until 1983 when the story would go from just rumors around sulfur to international headlines it started when jenny randles a ufo researcher wrote an article for flying saucer review she had cobbled the pieces of the story together with the help of from a few members of the British UFO Research Association. This article led to another article in a magazine called Omni, which was a science fiction slash science publication. And all of this and all of the efforts of the British UFO researchers got the ear of the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy here in the US. uh, CAUS for short, cause. Cause filed a freedom of information request that would ultimately lead to the release of the Halt memo. So the memo did get out by a freedom of information act request by a FOIA request. So if that was Halt's plan, uh, he may have stalled it, but it did. It did eventually come out. And once that memo was out, the story was out in full force. First appearing in the October 2nd, 1983 edition of the news of the world before becoming international news and after that the cat was pretty much out of the bag and uh, I want to kind of stop like that's pretty much the beginning of the story most of it uh, there's a lot of aftermath which like I said we'll probably get into on the second episode but this 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 is kind of a strange story in many other regards to it just being this very Intriguing UFO encounter among a bunch of you know a bunch of Air Force guys, like the military has protocols for every situation. Like that's just that's what it is. That's how you do things. And from the beginning, it seems like all of that was thrown out the window. It was always it was very disorganized. Uh, You know, from these guys being allowed to just go out and investigate this, which might not have been, I mean, you know, if it wasn't down plain whatever, but then after that, everything kind of goes to complete crap, and everyone is just kind of doing what they want. You know, um, I didn't really get into it a whole lot, but you had these groups of people on the base just kind of investing, you know, going out on their own and investigating the site later and stepping over people and you know, going out there and coming back and checking it out. I mean, hell, we even have Beniston going out into the forest on his time off to grab his own evidence. You know, just nothing was handled the way really that a lot of people would assume that the military or the Air Force would handle it. Um, Of course, all of these guys were briefed and briefed and interviewed and interviewed and briefed ad nauseum for like a week or whatever, but those are also kind of weird because you know these guys would come would go in they they made a statement, they signed the statement, and then later they've said it's not, you know, our statements were we were just kind of asked to sign this piece of paper. The statements are true enough, but they're kind of a watered down version of what actually happened. Maybe not so much outright lies, but uh stuff left out or stuff kind of avoided you know, in in a lot of these interviews and statements and briefs and all of this uh, you know, Penniston would go on to say that he was given sodium pentothal under one interview to get uh, more information out of him and things like that just very strange things occurred and then you have this sort of I don't want to say laziness but this weirdness from the higher ups you know, this isn't like Roswell. It isn't like they try to stop the story and cover it up. At least they didn't try too hard to cover it up, I guess. You know, they you know they just kinda let things come out and happen. And I guess they're very straightforward on one hand, but not so much on the other. It's kind of this hazy line in between. But you kinda get the sense so I got a lot of this a lot of my information from the book Encounter in Rendlesham Forest and this is by Nick Pope with John Burroughs and John Pennington. it's a fantastic book it's got like a whole, like just get it if you get a chance, it's a great book but when you're reading it and you're, and you're starting to learn about this case and the stuff that was going on in the background, you kind of get the sense that maybe a lot of people high enough up kind of knew what was going on and didn't really care if it got out that much or not? Well, at least that's my opinion on it. And it will, it might come in to play, I think, in the next episode, a little bit more. But, yeah, just more going on, I think, than just a weird UFO sighting. Just the, just all of the bugs and the gremlins in the in the stuff, the aftermath that happened after the sighting and in the years that come. But you know what? The story was out in 1983, but the story, it's not over, and we'll talk more about it, like I said, in episode uh, 10, in the next episode, but this is uh, the middle of the show, so I'm going to go uh, take a break, I'm going to throw on a new track, an acoustic guitar track that I did last weekend called Ice Storm, and then we'll come back and we will do the local headlines. Okay, and uh, the first headline we have is uh, from iherar.com, written by uh, Audrey Cube, And this is uh, horror, as a mysterious invisible creature pelts Gwanda family with stones. So this happened in Zimbabwe. In a bizarre development, a Gwanda family is reported to be living in perpetual fear after enduring sustained attacks by an invisible, mysterious creature using stones. Stories of mysterious creatures or invisible beings tormenting families have throughout history been dismissed as mere superstition. For skeptics, mysterious creatures do not exist. Such mysterious circumstances only happen in the movies, not in real life. However, such is not the case for a family in Gwanda, as they are being terrorized by an invisible creature that pelts them with mysterious stones narrating her ordeal on the zbc news portia zhao said her family is gripped by fear as they are getting pelted by stones by a mysterious invisible creature she said that the attacks have been going on for quite some time and now they have become rampant and more violent it has been happening for a while now stones are thrown on the roof at first we thought it was thieves or something making fun of us, uh, until now, when the stones have become rampant and we've even been getting attacks during the day, she said. She says they are now living in fear as they suspect the mysterious invisible creature is a goblin. She added that they also informed their neighbors about the strange happenings. The neighbors offered to investigate, but were perplexed as they couldn't see where the stones were coming from or who was attacking them. We called our neighbors and they uh, searched where the stones were coming from, but did not see anyone, but stones kept on coming. We are worried, she said. Neighbors who spoke to the state media reveal that at first they all thought it was just a joke until they also started to receive their fair share of attacks for providing the tormented family with Refuge. When our neighbor came to tell us, we thought it was a joke until a huge pebble missed my leg and I'm in a state of shock. I am leaving the house to sleep at my sister-in-law's place, uh, a neighbor had said. And I like that story because it sounds very, very familiar to uh, the Humpty Doo poltergeist case. I did it on the show a while back, I think at the beginning of the season. And uh, if you remember there that whole thing started with mysterious stones being f- thrown from like their driveway onto the house. And they started like appearing inside the house and all of that. And so that's why that one really grabbed me and I wanted to get it on the show. And this next one is from castanet.net written by Rob Gibson. And I want to say thank you to into the portal for posting this on their Twitter feed so that I can then steal it and use it for a new story. And this is a Kelowna man claims to have found a large footprint on his property. A Kelowna man believes he has proof that Sasquatch is real. Ray Watson lives on June Springs Road in East Kelowna and recently posted a photo of a six inch wide footprint. And if you check out the news article, there is a picture of said footprint. Be careful out there East K. Have some possible Sasquatch prints in my yard this morning. I'm on June Springs. Woke up to my garbage cans torn to pieces and my fence gates snapped. Anyone else come so- come across some sort of animal last night or uh, could I identify this print? It's totally weird if you ask me. Watson says the incident happened on January 19th and before he found the footprint he was not a believer. I didn't believe in it at first and then seeing the prints it shocked me and completely changed my point of view. I didn't really believe before watson says the night before he found the tracks he had heard a loud commotion the next day he found his garbage bin destroyed and for some reason they put destroyed in quotation marks in the article kind of weird i'm just as shocked as you and some people don't believe it but i know it's real that's all that matters to me and since that day watson has tried to connect with the so-called sasquatch experts But the closest he's gotten to confirmation is from a man named Brian Wells, who studied the prints. Wells said he couldn't confirm they were Sasquatch prints, but he also didn't rule them out. Watson says that the print is between a size 17 and 20 men's shoe size. Uh, It's a very large print. Whether there is a Sasquatch in the air or not, Watson says he's not taking any chances. I'm keeping my dog indoors at night, and now I make sure the door is locked. I'm a full-on lever and like I said if you check out the article there is a picture you can get a pretty decent picture of the footprint uh you know with a a ruler for a scale and all that not so good of a picture that you can see if there are dermal ridges or anything like that on in the print which would be like the big giveaway like if it has dermal ridges then you're on to something if it doesn't well then you're probably not But can't can't quite make it out with that photo. I would like to see, like, the original photo or, like, a better one. I think it would be nice. Uh, And then another Bigfoot story from Coast to Coast AM by Tim Banal, a Bigfoot filmed in Florida. And this one also has a picture. A man hiking in the Florida panhandle captured an intriguing footage of a bipedal creature which he suspects could be a Bigfoot. The potential Sasquatch sighting reportedly occurred last month as Tyler Howell was exploring a wooded area near the community of Crestview. Stopping at a uh, location along some power lines, the witness was stunned when he looked off the distance and saw a dark figure walking across the clearing. Although Howell managed to capture some footage of the sighting, which can be seen here, and there's a link for it, it is unfortunately fairly typical of most potential Sasquatch videos as the nature of the creature in the clip is incredibly difficult to discern. What makes House suspect that it may have been a Bigfoot it is that he is currently deer bow hunting season in Florida and where the figure would be a human hunter they would have required to wear some sort of orange clothing as a safety measure. While House footage may be hard to decipher Some Bigfoot enthusiasts argue that the creature's posture and apparent stride make for the strong possibility that it is the famed cryptid. Skeptical viewers, however, posit that the bipedal creature creature, creature, (laughs) is uh, probably just a person who is either unknowingly cast as Sasquatch or an active participant in an elaborate hoax. For his part, Howe says that he has returned to the area several times since his sighting in the hopes of spotting a mystery animal again but has yet to encounter anything unusual and yeah so uh check the link out go 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 look at the youtube video it's like 50 seconds long um he gets out of his car he sees it he films it it's very far away it is a black dot moving across a clearing with a bunch of power lines and then uh says oh shit a couple of times and that's kind of in the clip my thing is is like when I, if I were in this situation i'm I'm hunting I know that everyone should be wearing like orange clothing I see this person out in a place where there are potential deer hunters I'd be like I'm just gonna yell at this thing be like hey where's your orange you know say something like a, you know just try to get their attention just to see what happens would it react to me in any way you know if you get some sort of actual response then it's probably just a person walking but if you don't or maybe it doesn't react to you there might be a little more to it. But hey, who knows? Like, I've never seen a Bigfoot. I guess I don't know how I would react in such situation either, but I feel like that's what I would attempt to do. Who knows? I don't know. Probably wouldn't. And uh, that has been this week's Local Headlines. And of course, we're not through yet because we have some uh, small-town secrets, your small-town secrets to be exact, to share for this episode. Now before we get into tonight's your uh, small town secret, I just want to let everyone know if you want to share your story with the show, whether it be a UFO encounter, a Bigfoot sighting, uh, your, you know, gruesome local murder, anything like that, uh, you can get a hold on me on social media, you can get a hold of me on stscast.com. There is a a form at the bottom of the main page that you can submit and uh, we can we can do it. You can write something in, you can send in an article, we can have a little interview if you want. You know, you can just record it if you want, anything like that. But uh, I'll give out all those details at the end of the show. If it's something uh, that you would like to share with the show, that would be great. And tonight, I've got two uh, from Twitter. The first one is from uh, Eileen McCall. And so this was just a back and forth on Twitter. And so I kinda had to take some tweets and put them together to make it, like, you know, a paragraph and have it flow properly when I read it. So here we go. And this happened in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. I just saw a UFO finally. It was a bright red light that looked like a ball on fire and it moved across the sky in a straight line. At first, I thought it was a flare or fireworks, but it was moving in a straight line and there was no smoke. I didn't have enough time to... Uh, to take a picture, I only saw it for a few seconds before it disappeared behind the roof of our building. I was still trying to figure out what I was looking at uh, before it was gone. So so this, even though it's just like a very short kind of explanation of what happened, there's two key points in here, um, well one I didn't even talk about, I'll tell you. I asked her, I also asked her, I'm like, did it make any noise, did you hear any sound? And she said, no, nothing. Quiet. And so the thing about it that really intrigued me was one, in this day and age, my first go to is drone. Someone has seen a drone. But I feel that if it was close enough where you could see, like, the movement of the light, it looked like, you know, you could see that flariness of it, that fireness of it. Um, and you could see that there wasn't any smoke to anything. I feel like if it was close enough for you to observe those things, it was probably close enough that if it wasn't drone, you would hear it. Because drones are not known to be quiet things. They're actually very noisy. And then, you know, you hear this all the time from people like, everyone has a camera on their phone. Why don't you take pictures of these things? And this is exactly a great reason why. A it probably only lasted for a couple of few seconds, maybe. You know, she says that it wasn't there very long before it disappeared, just a few seconds. And, uh, you know, she spent all that time trying to figure out what it was. You know, she's sitting there trying to go, is this firework? Is this a flare? What is this? And by the time she gets to that point, by the time you've gotten... Oh, I should take a picture. By the time you've gotten that point, the thing is gone. You know, just because people have cameras in their pocket doesn't mean they have enough time to process what they're seeing grab their camera and attempt to take uh, a picture of what they're seeing so I'll, it's, it's it's a short sighting but it's got a lot of good a lot of good key factors in it this next one is from Chris Voidberg, who jumped into that kind of Twitter Twitter feed that Elaine had posted and we you know he talked about talked to her a little bit about the sighting as well uh, he follows me we follow each other on Twitter and uh, he also said hey you should submit this to uh, the Liminal Earth project which is a great thing uh, I'm going to link he has done this his story is coming from Liminal Earth and that's where I'm going to read it off of and it happened in Florida in Forest City, Florida but I wanted to talk about Liminal Earth real quick because it is a great little thing it's essentially a website where you can go and submit your your story or sighting and they will, they will post it and then they will pin it on a map of the country. And so you can get on there and you can just zoom around the United States map just clicking on everyone's little sightings and you can just read uh, Encounters for who knows how long. So, uh, it's a great... I love it. I love the idea of it. And one of these days, when we can get schedules and stuff synced up. I'm going to have the guys that run that on the show, and we're going to talk about it more in depth. But I've linked to Chris's story in the show notes, so you can check out Liminal Earth and his story on it after after you hear it here. So this is his encounter with a luminescent rainbow stick man. So this happened when I was maybe 11 or so. I was walking to my friend's house in the neighborhood, this particular friend lived a bit further away than the others, and I uh, just kinda zoned out. On a particular stretch of road that used to be a coquina slash dirt road between two sets of paved roads, something caught my eye on the other side of the road. I looked over and up and saw what I can only describe as a bright, rainbow, pixelated stick man. If you think how you would have animated a walking stick man, on an Atari graphics of the 80s, then you've nailed it. Only it was literally every color of the rainbow. Like most of us, I suppose, we've all had our encounters with weirdness and I wasn't necessarily afraid, but I was curious. I remember kind of reaching out to it mentally with a, hey, what's up, and got the strong impression it saw me and was not the least bit interested in me. At that moment, I heard a car approaching as this entity was in the middle of the oncoming lane, I thought, okay, this is about to get interesting. However, when I looked away from the car and back at the Rainbow Stickman, it was gone. Florida is a beautiful and magical place, but I still have no idea what happened that day. And uh, that's fantastic. I doubt we will ever have another uh, Rainbow Stickman encounter on the show. Know, who knows? Now maybe we might get a whole flood of it. It might be like Rainbow Stickman might be like Hatman 2.0 where now that we've released it on Liminal Map and released it on this show into the ether into the zeitgeist of the world might see a whole bunch of fluorescent stickmen popping up. Uh, time will tell on that I suppose. And uh, that has been Your Small Town Secrets for episode 5.09 and that will do it. For 5.09. So, uh, end of the show, let me just let you know where you can find me. I am on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have decided uh, to not to no longer pursue the whole TikTok thing. I uh, just, I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess I'm just not built for it. So, I'm not doing that anymore. If you try to find me on TikTok, it won't be there. But you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at STSCast and the instagram is at stscast.gram uh, and please make sure to visit stscast.com it will have show notes for this episode and every episode in fact tomorrow i'm going to, to make sure i update it cuz i've got to get a last episode on there too but all the links will be there uh, there'll be photos there you can find like i said the the email form to uh, send me your small town secret if you would like uh, you can find ways to support the show uh, there's a Patreon link on there. There is, you know, a merch link on there if you would like all of that great stuff. Um, but, you know, if you want to support the show and you can't do it financially, then just uh, tell a friend and or leave a review on your podcatcher of choice, uh, especially if it's iTunes, because that's the one that will help uh, really get the show out to uh, more people. And speaking of Patreon... On the STS Backroads, the exclusive Patreon podcast, next week I am going to be talking about the Consford incident, another big UK UFO story. So that's what's going on uh, over on the Patreon. If you want to get on on that, you can get that at the $5 level. That will get you the exclusive podcast. And uh, there's also a $3 level and a $1 level with other rewards, buttons and stickers and access to the music and just other stuff like that. So you can check that out, uh, patreon.com slash STSCast. Or like I said, it's also under the support tab on the website. And I think with that, that is really the end of this episode. Uh, Next episode, uh, even more Rendlesham weirdness. We're going to get into, like I said, a couple of uh, just explanations that will take the story in a couple of just way different directions that maybe you didn't see coming. Maybe you did. Uh, But we'll, we'll find out next week as we continue talking about the Rendlesham forest UFO incident. So until then, everyone have a great week, stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, It's warming up a little bit. That's great. And uh, I will talk to you in a couple of weeks until then. Remember every town has a secret. What is yours?